We're talking about common causes this morning. Should say that, but I already said it. So there we go. Uh, but thinking about uh, common causes, things that Christians have in common. Another way of asking this same question is, what do all Christians have in common? One answer is that um, a Christian is somebody who has been saved. So salvation is what Christians have in common. We'll address some questions about salvation this morning so that we can know what we all share, what Christians all share. We're going to think about a couple of questions, saved from what peril? If you're saved, you have to be saved from something. So what peril are we saved from? Uh, saved for what purpose? And then saved by what means? Think about being saved from what peril? Uh, and we'll follow Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and it'll address these three questions. Saved from what peril? Save for what purpose, save by what means. Uh, save from what peril. He's, Paul writes, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who was rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Talked about it before. Is Christianity a crutch? And the answer is, it better be more than that, because the Bible says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And I think you'll agree with me, a crutch is no good for a dead person. Uh, our problem is not that we are disabled spiritually, that we are crippled spiritually, that we are lame spiritually. The problem that God has to resolve is that we are dead spiritually. And so, uh, what do we learn about being one of the walking dead? Um, it says, you followed the ways of this world. And it's one thing that is associated with being dead spiritually, which everyone, I guess, at some level, all of us have dealt with before God made us alive, is that um, we follow the ways of this world and we operate according to the world system. I guess so. That, what does that mean? You know, there's a lot of different ways people would uh, characterize what is the world's system. It gives us a little more detail it says, you followed the ways of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And when it says the spirit at work in those who are disobedient, the those literally means and literally says sons. So what it says, when you walk among those who are sons of disobedience, Disobedience, we've looked at before. There are different words in the Bible that describe disobedience. Some are more action-focused. This word for disobedience is not as much action-focused as it is belief-focused. It's disbelief that leads to disobedience. So if I don't trust you, if I don't believe you, you're going to tell me to do something, and I probably won't do it. And my disobedience is rooted in disbelief, and that's the nature of this word. And so it talks about being dead 
in transgressions and sins, what characterizes those who are dead is that they would be described as sons of disobedience. You know, the parable of the prodigal son. We don't have to go, you know, we're all aware of it. Two brothers. But here's the question. Which of the two brothers is the son of disobedience? And it might seem like an easy question to answer because the younger brother squandered his wealth and wild living. Certainly he would be the son of disobedience because he did the wrong things, did he not? Interesting, in the context of the parable, it says in Luke, the older brother, when the father embraced his prodigal son and killed the fatted calf for him, um, the older brother became angry, refused to go in. So it says in Luke, his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered the father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Uh, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience, um, is it the younger brother or the older one? And if we define it as disbelief that leads to disobedience, the younger brother ended up coming back around. The older brother is the one who distanced himself. So with respect to the way that this is being talked about, you know who the son of disobedience is? The older brother. Um, important to remember why Jesus tells this parable in the first place. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. <laughs> you have to mutter this. This man welcomes sinners and meets with them. <laughs> so that's why you have to, you have to mutter it. Um, so uh, who represents with respect to there's the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and there's the tax collectors and sinners. So with respect to those individuals that Jesus is telling this parable to, in Jesus' estimation, is he calling, would he call the tax collectors and sinners the sons of disobedience? Or would he speak to the Pharisees and teachers of the law? It's pretty clear. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law are the would be more characterized as the sons of disobedience, those who cannot believe that God would be good to them. Them. Whoever the them are. For them, tax collectors and sinners. God can't like them because they don't try as hard as we do. Part of the, the and all of us who are older brothers, oldest children, oldest children in you, yeah, we get this, and we, we understand the older. We understand the older brother. Um, we, under, we understand that. Um, we understand that it's hard to kind of believe that God would accept somebody who wouldn't try hard. And yet, you know what Christians believe? That's exactly what God has done. Um, this isn't merely a problem that Jewish officials dealt with. Uh, look what it says. As for you, um, what verse is that? 
Yeah, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to walk when you lived, when you followed the course of this world. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Um, all of us have been controlled at some point in our life by the spirit of the older brother. It's natural for us that God rewards those who try hard, and he punishes those who don't. And yet, what this passage says that all of us are dead in trespasses and sins, We've all believed that we must earn our place in God's love. And like the father in the parable, the character of the prodigal father is the center of the story. It says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. That doesn't sit well with many, that God would reach out in grace to somebody who has done nothing to deserve it. But that's the spirit of the older brother. And that's the son of disobedience. Because the fact is, our God is like the father in the story of the prodigal son. He reaches out and extends grace to those who are undeserving. That's what he's like. And that's what it means to be saved. It means to be one who has been cut off from God, out of contact with him, and not being able to do anything to rectify that. God reaches out, and we have to accept a free gift. Anyone who is a Christian has done that, and that's what it means. Um, saved from what peril? Talks about death and disbelief. Saved for what purpose? It says, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. I want you to look at this verse. This verse answers a question. Now, the questions are, saved from what peril and saved for what purpose? I want you to look at this verse. Why does God want to be involved with you in the first place? So he can get you to give. Right? So he can get you to behave. So he can get you to change the way you do things. What does this verse say about why does God want to be involved with us in the first place? You see the answer? In order in the ages to come, look what it says. He might, well, let me look at, in order in the ages to come, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. You know what it says? It indicates there the reason why God wants to be involved with us is so in the eternal ages to come, he might show us how kind he is. That's what it indicates. Um, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. God caused us to share in the life Jesus experienced. He raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. The life Jesus experiences, you and I experience, because when we put our faith in Christ, we are seated with him. Uh, that's what it indicates. We share together together. 
in Jesus' life. In fact, you know what unites you and me? And flat out, is it through faith in Christ? You're seated in Christ. And so are you. And so are you. And so are you. You know, the deal is we are all included in Christ's life. We have a lot in common. Jesus' life is our life. That's what we share. And the fact is, some of us look different from one another. Some of us act different from one another. But you and you and you, through faith in Christ, you are seated with Christ. And if you're seated with Christ, and that's where you draw your life, is Jesus' life ever going to fade out? Ever going to kind of fritz out the way the music did? And that wasn't John and Abby's favorite. <laughs> uh, but was it ever going to pause? Ever going to? No, it won't. Because Jesus' life is secure, and we have been placed in him. Um, you know what God wants us to, and Randy kind of it alluded to it when we were talking about, we don't want to reach into your pocket, because actually, God doesn't. Now, we give to him, and we give service, and we give a number of different ways, but that's not a deal that God makes with us, that if we continue to do this, he continues to allow us to be saved. Salvation is something he does that he places us in Christ when we believe. Um, God does things, well, he is involved with us to give things to us. Um, there's a story in the Bible, one of my favorite stories. It's about Mephibosheth. Excuse me. It feels like a breathe. It feels like a sneeze, doesn't it? <laughs> Mephibosheth. <laughs> Anyways, he, Mephibosheth was the, um, with David, David, um, the king, he um, had a rival and he had a really, really good friend, Jonathan. Jonathan was the son of Saul and David's really good friend. But Saul was somebody who opposed David. And so there was a, uh, and, and Mephibosheth is right in the middle of it. Uh, we learn, it says in Second Samuel, Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried to leave, he fell and became crippled. And his name was Mephibosheth. Now, this is Jonathan's son, and he fell, was crippled, and, and both legs. So what ended up happening, David, again, he had two different relationships with those close to Mephibosheth. Uh, Saul was Mephibosheth's grandfather, and Jonathan was Mephibosheth's father. Uh, Saul had very, David had a testy relationship with Saul, but a very close relationship with Jonathan. Um, and I'm going to read from 2 Samuel 9, uh, just, just listen, because David asked, so he comes to this place where he's firmly in the, th in the, in the throne. Of Israel, He asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? By this time, Saul had died. And David is looking for, I'm looking for someone who is in the family of Saul and Jonathan so that I'd like to be able to be kind to them. That's what his objective was. So it goes on. Uh, now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. So they called him to appear before David. And the king said to them, him, are you Ziba, your servant, he replied. The king asked, is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? 
Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan, but he's crippled in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, he is at the house of Machir, son of Emiel and Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel, when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. Do you imagine how Mephibosheth feels? His guy crippled, his nose, he's, um, he's a descendant of Saul, who was David's sworn enemy. Um, he knows that David understands his connection to Saul. And he's being summoned to the capital. Now, when a king ascends to the throne, and you have been part of a family that has opposed his installation, it usually doesn't work out very well. You're usually not being invited to have tea. And so I imagine um, that it's safe to say that Mephibosheth would have been terrified. And um, here's, what the, here's how the conversation went really is a neat scene when you just kind of think about what this would have been like. Mephibosheth shuffling, you know, shuffling into the king's chambers. And David says, don't be afraid. I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will... Mm. This is really such a neat picture. You will always sit at my table as a son. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? David was somebody who noticed dead people and wanted to show them kindness. Um, it says, And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table and he was crippled in both feet. Um, Mephibosheth didn't know David's heart, uh, but David looked at Mephibosheth through Jonathan-colored glasses rather than Saul-colored glasses. He was motivated by kindness. Not what Mephibosheth imagined, but this is, this is a picture of grace. This is what grace looks like. Somebody who has no way to be deserving of entering into a relationship with a king in authority. There's nothing that Mephibosheth had to commend him that would allow David to be forced into making this kind of extension. But it is what, um, this is a picture of grace. And this is the image of God. This is what God is like. And says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And we were dead in transgressions and sins, every bit as much as Mephibosheth was crippled and lame in two feet. Um, Save from what peril, death and disbelief, Saved for what purpose? Life, and in the ages to come, that God might show us the incomparable riches of his grace 
in kindness. Tell you what, in 10,000 years, we will still be learning about God's kindness. And in 10,000 years after that, we will go through eternity learning about God's kindness. Um, so I'll leave one more question. Say by what means. It says, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Uh, it says we're saved by grace through faith. So that's the means by which this is applied to us. We are saved by grace through faith. We're saved by grace. This is salvation from God's perspective. Grace means that salvation is God's initiative, not ours. God initiates, because we're not in a position to initiate anything if we're dead in trespasses and sins. There's nothing we can do to take a first step. If God doesn't take the step, it doesn't happen. So salvation is by grace. It's God extends the offer of salvation. And it is by faith. Okay, what are we supposed to do then? What does faith mean? We're saved through faith. Um, we receive the gift through faith. Quickly, we're going to couple very quickly a couple things. We've talked about it before. In what faith in what? So imagine this. We've talked about this. This is so. Imagine there's a bar of a high jump right here, right? The bar of a high jump, and to get on the other side of the bar to clear the bar is how you become accepted by God. Um, what we know is that the bar is is was pretty high. The Ten Commandments are pretty high. Would you agree? Um, don't covet. You know, and then what Jesus ended up doing is making the bar even higher, saying, oh, by the way, if you even, um, if you call a brother Raka, you've murdered him. But yeah, you can try to clear the bar. But go ahead. And, and by the way, I know some of you are saying, well, at least I'm not sexually immoral. If you have ever lusted, um, you've already committed adultery in your heart. So, but you can go ahead and try to clear the bar and see if, and if you, if you fall in just one spot, um, then there's no other attempts. There's not a bunch of attempts. So you make an attempt. If you screw up once, you're, you're done. But okay. You can, okay. <laughs> you know, there's not a real good chance that we're going to clear that bar. Here's what happened. Jesus came and sailed over it. Never did a wrong thing. And Jesus is, the bar is behind Jesus. Can we agree with that? Jesus, is there anything Jesus can do to be more accepted by the Father? Ah, the bar is behind him. You know what it means to be a Christian? That we're in Christ. And you know what it means to be in Christ? And if here's the bar and Christ is here, we're not over here. You know what it means to be in Christ? The bar is behind us. We are credited with having cleared the bar. Whoa, wait, whoa, hey, whoa. <laughs> you know, I'm not Jesus. I know, but you're in him. So if our eternal welfare is conditioned by what Jesus did, and what Jesus did is already done, then our salvation is not a pending decision. Does that make sense? If it's, if it's already based on what Jesus did, then Jesus already did it. And if we're included in what Jesus did, then our salvation isn't a pending decision. It's a foregone conclusion. What if we believe that? You know, if we believe that, what would be? What would we be? Christians. That's what a Christian believes. That our salvation is predicated on what Jesus did, and we 
have to believe in it. And so you're sitting down in a seat. You know what it means to have faith? It means to do what you're doing with the seat. Again, we've talked about this before. There's a, um, yeah. So. You believe this chair could hold me up? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. There is a tear here, but most, most likely this, this chair. Why is this chair not holding me up? Why? Why isn't it holding me up? Tell me. I'm not sitting in it. Let this chair represent Christ. You know, for a lot of my life, if you said, Mike, if you were to stand before God and ask him, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? And what I would have said is because I go to church and because I am an altar boy and because I, because I, because I, because I, what does that say about who I'm trusting in for eternal life? Me. Am I sitting in what Christ did? No, I'm sitting in what I did. And at one point, I came to understand that salvation is a gift, not depending on what I do, can't boast about it, can't talk about how many times I went to church, can't talk about how, and I came to understand that, oh, that's what salvation is. You know what salvation is? This is Christ, and here's what he did. And faith is doing, It did. It almost did. Not. It almost did not work. Okay, that's it. There was a little crack there. Okay, we're good. We're good. We're good now. <laughs> so, um, I put my weight, and the chair is holding me up, and and this is when I became a Christian. Let that chair represent what Christ has done for you. You're sitting in what he did. And you know what? You're secure. You share in his life. And his promises will never waver or falter. The bar is behind him. And through faith in Christ, the bar is behind you as well. And that is what salvation is. Save from what peril? Death and disbelief. Save for what purpose? so that he could give us life and show how kind he is to us in the ages to come. Saved by what means? By grace. Through faith. Let's pray. Thanks for promises that never waver and never falter, that can't be rescinded and they can't be undone. The bar is behind Christ. He cleared it and is seated at your right hand. And when we put our faith in what he did, not what we do, in what he did, then we are Christians. And that's what we have in common. And as we understand that, this understanding that we are all in Christ together when we believe that this is the basis of our acceptance. Communion leads to community. Thanks for your purposes in Jesus' name. Amen.